As we come to the Word of God this morning, I want to rely on the work of, of that one who was a friend to many of us, Pastor Albert Martin. For back in 2000, our friends there at Montville faced the shocking circumstances of one of their pastors uh, resigning right at the same time that Pastor Martin was uh, announcing that he would be moving to Michigan to write. So, close together, the congregation heard the news that these two of their pastors were leaving. I believe the one was already gone and the other was about to leave in a year or two. Our circumstances here at Grace are not exactly like uh, those at Montville then, yet we may feel something of the shock and concern as they would have felt in hearing of a resignation. And I think that there is value at a time like this of coming to the Word of God and say, what is there that will guide our thinking? And I think there's also a value at looking at how a sister church in an earlier time went through something of a trial that is at least similar in nature. Pastor Martin preached two sermons on their crisis in leadership. The first, three words of consolation. The second, three words of admonition. And we have heard the first of these back on uh, Christmas Eve in our Sunday school class, remember and believe that God our Father remains on his throne of unrivaled and undisturbed sovereignty. Remember and believe that Jesus Christ abides with his people in the unfailing sufficiency of his grace. Someone has left. That doesn't mean that Jesus Christ has left. Remember and believe that the Holy Spirit is still active in equipping men with graces and gifts essential for competent pastoral leadership. We ought to not be, oh no, everything is falling apart. Let us believe that Christ, as head of his church, will care for us. So what have we done? We've heard the first, the three words of consolation, then if you were listening with even half attention, you would know that our New Year comfort from Isaiah 40 had something to do with this theme. Uh, there, uh, we were urged in the language of verse 31 to know that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. We saw the complaint, the correction, the contrasting conclusion, the failure of man's strongest, but the success of the Jehovah waiters or those who are waiting on God. And there we need to just remind ourselves that we are roped to the pole. We are aggressively waiting at the helm of the ship in the midst of the storm, confident that God will minister grace to us. So it yet remains to us this morning to take up this theme of three words of admonition, three words of caution, three words of warning. And as I do so, I want us to just think in terms of society around us. I don't know any of you who would be offended to get a prescription medicine bottle that has a warning on it. You know, if our medicine is going to be potentially dangerous, if there is some pitfall, then we want to know what that please tell me, please give me the caution, please give me the warning. I personally am not offended when I came in Utah to a sign like this. And when I see a sign like this, I can tell you I'm not going to be driving 35 miles an hour. I would much rather have the sign that warns me of what is up ahead as opposed to coming into a place like this with no guardrails and no signs warning me. 
It's at this point that I'm going to begin to think about changing drivers. If you know anything of my nervousness at driving at that kind of position. Warnings come to us, though, not only on our medicine bottles and our roads, but also in the Christian life. This wonderful psalm of God speaking to us in his creation and in his scriptures, it speaks to us there in verse 11, moreover by them, that is the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the all these synonyms for the scriptures, moreover by them your servant is warned. And so if you've signed up to follow God and his word, then you have signed up to be warned. It's that simple, isn't it? We read in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. I've got the New King James here because it uses that word of admonition instead of the more general word of instruction. It's a kind of instruction, but it's a kind of instruction that is a warning. We're familiar with this. Fathers are to bring their children up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. A parent's job involves warning the children that he loves. And similarly, a pastor's job involves warning the sheep that he loves to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. This verbal warning is something that is expected from them. So here we are this morning to take up three words of caution, three words of warning that come to us. And I am not saying that you are going to plow ahead heedlessly, but if we come into an area in our church life that has got the danger of some curves with a drop-off over there or a drop-off over there, it is fitting for us to hear a word of warning that some other congregation has heard that may be of benefit for us that we all get around those corners uh, with uh, a minimum disruption. So please come with me to consider these three words of warning as we have it. First of all, Roman numeral one, <clears throat> beware of a misplaced trust in man. Isaiah talks about this, chapter 2 and verse 22, where he says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? E.J. Young, commenting on the passage, says, here is the reason why it is a folly to trust in man. In his nostrils there is breath. Man's life is transitory. God had breathed the life into him, and God also stops the life that is sucking in that air. And as breath was first breathed into him, so it also may be taken away and depart from man. This warning is needed for us as changes in leadership can be very destructive to a congregation, but it can also be a time where we feel our need and we lean all the more on our God. As we heard in that Sunday school class, a crisis pulls away the blankets and the coverings to show us what we truly are. First of all, A, the danger and the misery of trusting weak man over God. Here is the Jeremiah 17 passage. When a crisis comes, the godly man in that Jeremiah 17 passage is the one who trusts in the Lord and he will not fall apart because he is like a tree planted by the water. But let's look for a moment at the danger and the misery and trusting of trusting in weak men. Listen to Matthew Henry. 
Concerning the disappointment and trouble those will certainly meet with who depend on creatures for success and relief when they are in trouble, cursed be the man that trusts in man. God pronounces him cursed for the insult that the carnal man gives to God. Or cursed, that is miserable, is the man that does so. If you are one of those individuals that we prayed for with your health and you are looking to the doctor, your prospect is going to be rather miserable if you as a believer are coming into that situation and you are totally unnerved by it, you are frantic and you're looking to this expert and this human and this human and they've got the answers and they've got the solutions, but in all of your seeking medical help, and I believe we ought to, you have forgotten to seek the help of your heavenly Father. That is not going to be a good outcome. Back to Matthew Henry. Or cursed, that is miserable, is the man that does so. The sin here condemned is trusting in man, putting confidence in the wisdom and power and the kindness and faithfulness of men. Our trust should only be placed in the attributes of God, instead of trusting in the power and the kindness and faithfulness of men, we need to trust in the kindness, in the power, and the faithfulness of our God in heaven. But if we look no higher than man when we come into a time of deep trouble, then we are going to be devastated by that trouble. Isaiah tells us, God is the arm of his people. And this broad principle of not trusting in man tells us that we are not to make an idol of man. My life simply cannot go on without this particular man or woman in my life. So first of all, A, the danger and misery of trusting weak man over God. Secondly, B, the vanity of trusting in the best of weak man over God. And here I'm speaking from Psalm 146 that we read together. And in that psalm, it begins with a determination to praise the Lord, and that was the theme. Verse 1, verse 2, again verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Uh, praise the Lord. But then further in this Psalm 146, God is the great helper of his people. In verse 7, 8, and 9, he opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And so there is this attention that is drawn. This is who God is. This is the one that we are to pray to he is the one that we are to worship, and he is the one that we are to depend on to get us through this stretch of trouble. But then, notice with me particularly the language of verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Some men are princes. Some men are very worthy men. Sometimes we judge someone to be a prince, but still we are not to put too much stock in any man even if they appear to us to be a very worthy man. What's the lesson for us? Well, do not think that the old wrinkled guy is indispensable to the life of Grace Church. That simply is not true. As well, do not think that a young promising guy is indispensable to this church. The only man that is indispensable to Grace Church 
is the man, Christ Jesus. And he's indispensable because he is the God-man who came and lived that perfect life and died that perfect death and was raised again uh, from the dead as a testimony of God's pleasure with him. Good men are at best instruments in Christ's hand. But don't confuse the instrument with the God who is holding the instrument. And God is to be the object of our faith, our trust, our prayers, and our worship. Listen to this little line from Colossians 3 and verse 4. It's the kind of line that I think that maybe I could read through Colossians and this would not be the phrase that jumps out to me in any one of those four or five readings. But here it is, Colossians 3 and verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Let's think about that. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Jesus Christ is the life of Grace Church. All that he is, all that he gives to us, it provides our life. Well, Roman number one, the misplaced trust in man. But then secondly, come with me as we consider this directive, beware of an unwarranted suspicion and murmuring against your leaders. And please don't think that there is a major problem that I am seeking to address from the pulpit. No, but there is a word of direction for us. First of all, A, in general, fallen man tends to suspect and blame leaders. You've got the coach. The team is losing more games than what they're winning. And there may be a failure on the part of the fan base to recognize, well, at this game, the flu bug had just gone through the team, and that's why they lost or a key factor in it. Uh, there may be other reasons that come with four or five of the starters uh, being injured, but nonetheless, you simply look at the win-loss record and the calls rise. The coach is to be blamed. The coach is to be fired. Or a storm hits the nation and the government gets blamed. We've all lived long enough to witness this. But the president, we don't want to blame the president for the fact that there was a hurricane. There is a responsibility on how do you respond to that. But generally, fallen man tends to suspect and to blame and therefore murmur against uh, leaders. Secondly, B, let's see this in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, fallen man tends to suspect and blame leaders. There's been that time where Israel's been crying out, God, deliver us, deliver us from this bondage in Egypt, but it gets worse before it gets better. It gets worse when Pharaoh speaks to the foreman of the people of Israel and says, be quiet. I want you to be producing the same number of bricks, and oh, by the way, go get your own straw. And when the foreman come out of this meeting with Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, they, the foremen, say to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Our troubles are because of you guys. We find it again. Exodus 14 and verse 10. This little number two, Pharaoh's army catches up to Israel at the Red Sea. Pharaoh draws near, 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. And the first thing that we ought to wonder is where in the Bible, where in actual history did the Israelites ever say to Moses and Aaron, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? They were crying out to God that they would be delivered. And so it seems that they may well be making this up. Why were Moses and Aaron acting as leaders? You remember how anxious Moses was to be the leader of Israel? (laughs) No, God, no. (laughs) Please get someone else. I can't talk anyway. And in the end, God said, all right, fine, take Aaron, your brother. He can be your, your mouthpiece. But Moses reluctantly obeys God to bring Israel out of Egypt, and God is giving this as the answer to their prayers. But when things start to get worse, they blame Moses and Aaron. Then very quickly, the little number three, Exodus 15, the bitter water at Marah, And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Exodus 16, at the the hunger that leads to the miraculous manner, this little number four. And the whole congregation, the whole congregation of of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. We know what you're really like, Moses. You were so anxious to get away from Jethro and to get back into the land and you had this scheme of coming up with the plagues and all these uncomfortable confrontations so that you could get the nation of of Israel out of Egypt so you could take us out into the wilderness to kill us. Really, could you put a much worse construction on what was really going on But here I want us to think for a moment of number 16, little number five, Korah's rebellion. And in my judgment, this one takes the cake for blaming. Why do I say so? Well, it's Korah's rebellion. They're against uh, Moses for taking too much to himself. And these fellow uh, descendants, cousins uh, in the line of uh, Levi, um, they claim to be special. You know the story. In the interest of time, let me just summarize it, that Korah and 250 others, along with their families, are going to offer this fire to the Lord. And Moses speaks to the people and says, everybody, you better get away from these guys. You need to move away. Because if God is speaking through me, then something is going to happen over here with them, and the earth is going to open up and is going to swallow them alive. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. You know what happened the next day? Something rather striking to me. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people 
of the Lord. Isn't it almost unbelievable? You think that Moses was able to stomp on the ground hard enough to cause that fracture that swallowed up only his enemies and then another tap at a certain angle and it caused the earth to close back up over them. And it makes us see the irrationality of sin, doesn't it? Is Moses the real real cause? And if he is the real cause, then what are you doing grumbling about him to his face the next day after he supposedly did this? It makes me wonder if a pattern of complaining, as we see them getting better at over the course of the time in the wilderness, if it becomes thoroughly ingrained as a bad habit getting worse over the course of time. And in judgment, 14,700 more are slain, and there's Aaron, one that they're complaining about, who at Moses' instigation says, Aaron, get your censer, fill it with incense, and get out there between the dead and the living and becomes the means of more of them not being destroyed. Then the sixth passage, 1 Samuel 30, Ziklag burned. Here's the situation. David and his men uh, come back to Ziklag. It's been burned. Their families have been taken away. And amazing to me, the people spoke of stoning David because all the people were in bitter soul, each for his sons and his daughter. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if you were David, if I were David, I think I would have a little reservation about leading a bunch of armed men, soldiers, into a battle where we're going to be killing people, and some of these guys have just been talking about putting me to death. But there it is. Well, I'm very grateful that blaming the leadership for recent events has not been the settled determination of anyone that I am aware of. Many of you have been exemplary in your responses. However, we ought not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Thirdly, see, the practical relevance What relevance is there in these passages? I mean, that's Old Testament. That is from so long ago. Does that really have any pertinence to us? Well, our 1 Corinthians 10 passage that we read, verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. And then five lessons are laid out. Do not desire evil as they did, verse 6. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, verse 7. Do not engage in sexual immorality, verse 8. These are the things that we learn. It was very practical, ethical, and moral instruction. Do not put the Lord Jesus Christ to the test, verse 9. And verse 10, do not grumble. Do not grumble. Do not murmur. It's the Greek equivalent found in the Old Testament Greek Bible, Number 16, and elsewhere, of the people murmuring and grumbling. Now I quote Pastor Martin. In the academy, I told the men that if they aren't man enough to take the questioning of their motives and the questioning of their judgment by other men who don't know one-tenth of the facts, they better not go into the pastoral ministry. Again, Most of you have been totally exemplary in this matter. Some have said, others have written, this must have been a greater disappointment to those who were most involved in the situation. Yet I know we are not yet in our promised land, our promised land of having the next generation preacher-teacher in place, So may God bless us 
as we move towards that promised land together. Please view yourself as being in this together with your leaders. Some of us as leaders don't plan on going anywhere. We have a vested interest in this. Some of us as leaders have uprooted and come to this place hoping that there will be an ongoing stability in leadership. And nearly all of us have children or grandchildren that desperately need to benefit from that future ministry down the road. So please believe that we love you and we have the very best on our hearts and minds for you and for the church. Please believe that we are committed to being prayerful and careful in the process. And this is why so much of the process has been shared with you along the way. We want to get it right. We want to find the man after God's own heart. Please believe that even if we did not love you, we still love ourselves and our offspring enough that we want to be prayerful and careful in the process. We are in this thing together. Roman number three. Beware. Beware of a carnal haste. And this is where we want to spend some time. Beware of a carnal haste in seeking to supply the need for additional leadership. You remember when Israel was in a hurry to get a king? 1 Samuel 8 and verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Okay, they're talking now to their esteemed Samuel. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. They are hurrying to get a king. And God gives them a king after their own heart. But he is an impressive king. He is head and shoulders taller. Why, he looks like a king. He's just perfect. But the result was tragic for Israel. King Saul was very different from King David. What was true of King David was that he was a man after God's own heart. And what is true of Samuel is he tried to kill David on multiple occasions. He tried to kill his own godly son, Jonathan, because Jonathan made a covenant with David. Saul killed 85 of the priests. And even when his soldiers wouldn't rise up to do it, he goes on and gets the foreigner, Doeg the Edomite, to do it. He's the king who consults a witch at Endor. He's the king who, when he's injured, go ahead, goes ahead and commits suicide. Well, let us not be in that kind of haste. Secondly, A, or firstly, A under this heading. Recognize the objective standard of dominantly grace requirements. And I'm going to make a few 
observations here you see them, I think, on your notes, one, two, three, and following. These are observations on 1 Timothy chapter 3, the list of qualifications of elders and deacons. First of all, verse 1, the gospel ministry is a work. Anyone desires the office of overseer, desires a noble task. He desires a good work. It's not a position of honor. It's a work. Verse 2, number 2, there is a must be standard of qualifications. These qualifications are not like Play-Doh that we can just shape into whatever we want. The little number three, there must be a discernible measure of giftedness and skill in leadership. Two abilities, two areas of giftedness that are mentioned. One is leadership. See it in verse four. He must manage. He must lead his own household well. Verse 5, for someone does not know how to manage, how to lead his own household well, how will he take care of, of God's church? Part of this leadership is giftedness, but a great deal of it is learned behavior. Learned from being in a responsible position in the home, in the workplace. Little number four, there must be a discernible measure of giftedness in teaching. Verse two, it's the seventh qualification down on Paul's list in 1 Timothy 3, able to teach, one Greek word. According to my count, And I'll confess, I got different counts on different times. But most times when I counted, I have 15 qualifications from 1 Timothy 3 on a pastor. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, I've got 20 in the list of qualifications. No doubt there's overlap and repetition with Timothy. And then there are six in 1 Peter 5. 15 plus 20 plus 6 is 41 qualifications. And of the 41 qualifications, there are three of them that speak of public ability to minister. Only three. 20 qualifications in Titus 1, and two are on speaking ability that be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And if we may say that there is a public ministry side and a private side of the pastor, Paul puts far greater emphasis on the private side of the man. And the sad reality is, you know it and I know it, there are some very, very gifted men, gifted at preaching, And yet they are totally disqualified. One man, multiple adulteries. Another, adultery, contentions, hypocrisy. And once it is known that a man does not practice what he preaches, I don't care how much natural gift he's got in communicating, people are not going to want to listen to that man. At least godly People are not going to want to listen to that man. And friends, I know that it is extremely easy to be primarily influenced by public giftedness. Still, I ask you to try and put your emphasis where Paul and Peter put their emphasis. Little number five. Robert Murray McShane says, it is not great gifts that God blesses so much as it is great likeness to Christ. A, there's an objective standard. B, recognize the necessity of testing prior to ordination. It says in the 1 Timothy 3, though in the deacon list of qualifications, 
let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. It's written regarding deacons. There is a time of examining character and gift. Pastor Martin, does the prospective deacon stubbornly hold his own opinion and stand his ground at the cost of unity in the diaconate? If so, then that is a problem. If this testing time is for deacons, how much more is there to be a similar testing appropriate for an elder? The pastoral office is the ruling office. There are those qualifications for the pastor, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. It flows right into the discussion of the deacon, verse 8 on through 13. And in verse 10, under the, dealing with the, the deacons, let these first also be tested. There's a hint that it's looking back over both lists of deacon and elder. And it may take some time to discern if a man meets all 41 qualifications in Timothy and Titus and Peter. It's good for someone to give right answers in an initial interview. But it is more important to give the right answers in the interview of life. And how long does it take to discern that one is a godly, righteous leader in his home? How long does it take to get an adequate sense that one is well thought of by outsiders? How long does it take to see if one desires a good work as opposed to a position of honor? Now, let me give a caution that grows out of this process. Paul is saying, time of testing, here's all these qualifications. Some of us, some of you, may feel that you have something that borders upon direct revelation from God on this process. You just know. Well, I have to plainly tell you that I do not have direct revelation from God on this process. All I have is a list of 41 qualifications that I can put them down on my clipboard and a calendar and the help of the Holy Spirit. I've got a clipboard, a calendar, and the Holy Spirit. I've got a clipboard, I've got my 40... Help me, Holy Spirit, to determine if the man on this page is the man that I'm seeing. And this is relevant for us. Every time we consider a deacon, every time we consider a, a pastor, help me to get my clipboard out every three to six months, that's why I say a calendar, and see if the picture is getting any clearer. Please be careful on leaning too much to, on your supposed direct revelation from God. You may not call it that. You just know it. You just feel it. Friend, I do not want the direct revelation from God methodology. And would you like to know why I don't want it? Because if I get it wrong once then I need to be stoned as a false prophet who didn't get it right every time. And reality is, we're all limited, fallible creatures with a clipboard, a calendar, and the help of the Holy Spirit. We do not have omniscience, and we do not have direct revelation. And King Jesus evidently thinks it's enough to give you a clipboard and a calendar and the promised help of his Holy Spirit. And we simply may not have enough data in one month 
or in six months to make a critically important decision. Our thinking must be tentative. Please don't talk to a potential pastor like you have direct revelation from God. Especially if you're going on three of the qualifications out of the list of 41. The data after three months, six months may be positive, but it may not be satisfactory to help us to know assuredly with the help of the Holy Spirit who I see on the page is who I see standing in front of me. Now, obviously. If a man has been proven as a pastor for 10 years of commendable ministry, then I get the period of testing is shorter. Thirdly, C. Recognize the heightened responsibility of pastors in the process. Here's the Timothy 5 passage. Here's the direction that Paul gives to Timothy as an apostolic representative, setting things in order that remain in the presence of God, verse 21 of chapter 5, Timothy 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasting in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves, yourself pure. Who does Paul give the primary responsibility? To Timothy, the apostolic representative, the leader. Who's going to lay hands on? Well, it's generally the leadership. So there is a higher responsibility that is given to the existing elders of the local church. Do the elders have exclusive responsibility in this? No. Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, the congregation is to extend the hand to vote. They have a share in it. Can we trust Timothy to do the right thing? Yes, if he's being impartial. What is the danger in being hasty? A wrong decision will be made. One who is not really qualified will be put in a position of rule in the church. And in the context, verse 20, Timothy will have to publicly rebuke an elder that he hastily ordained. Well, that ought to be fun, Timothy. Verse 22b, when that position of rule is abused by one not truly qualified, then Timothy will get a share in that man's guilt, a share in the guilt of the man who was hastily ordained and not really qualified. Do you see that in the text? Do not be hasty in laying on hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I think most of us have a sense. I bear enough guilt in and of myself. I don't need to share in somebody else's problems that they've caused. What broad principles in the context guides Timothy's thinking on ordination. Well, verse 24, some men's sins are easier to discern than others. Verse 25, some men's good works are easier to discern than others. Some are more of an open book. Some are not. By the way, did Timothy have the direct revelation from God methodology in his ordaining of men? If God just gave him a name, then he doesn't have to worry about whether or not he's hasty. But it's precisely because God didn't give him the name that he's in the same place we are. Clipboard, calendar, and the help of God's Holy Spirit. Why would Timothy need time to test men before ordination if he's just getting a name from heaven? The true people of God will wait on God. We're dependent on King Jesus. 
He gives pastors and preachers and shepherds after his own heart. Let us wait on the Lord. And how do we land the plane? Well, fourthly D. Recognize the great goal of recognizing a godly pastor. What do we want? Why do we go to the trouble? Well, we want in a pastor what is in the heart of the Apostle Paul. We long for God to give us a pastor who has personally experienced God's mercy and God's grace. One who, like Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15, can say, of whom I am chief. In my book, I'm one of the worst sinners who lived because I was out there working to kill Christians. We long for God to give us a pastor who preaches God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you don't care a look about order in the church, well, I hope you will. And I think you do. You ought to care something about being a sinner who is saved by the grace and the mercy that is found in Jesus Christ. And I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, please take your word and own it. Help us in this time where there are dangerous curves, thin road, no guardrails, and help us as a group to navigate that road, fill our hearts with a measure of hope, Help us to know assuredly that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the head of your church. You're the only man. Even as the God-man, you're the only man that is indispensable to grace. And we pray that you will open your hand and give us a good gift in your time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.